0: Welcome to Derp's Talk About Games. I'm your co-host, Mango. And I am your co-host, Buddy. And today we're going to talk a little bit about satire and Superman. But before we do that, Buddy, why don't you tell the folks at home what it is we do on this podcast.
1: On this podcast, we talk about games, and we also talk about movies and TV related to those games, and also movies and TV related to vaguely nerdy things. And I guess we're sort of breaking into new territory, because we are now talking about Podcasts on movies and TV that are tangentially related to games. Uh, so it's yeah, maybe I mean the furthest stuff field we've ever uh, gone. We we always do kind of like
0: deeper anal like you know deeper analysis on the movies we talk about right. And uh, so so just to, to set the stage, um, overly sarcastic productions, uh, the makers of Trope Talk, um, and some other things on their fine YouTube channel, um, put out a couple of episodes of one of is effectively a podcast that they called detailed diatribe about Superman. Um, I listened to them both a while ago. I recommended that Buddy go listen to them because I thought they made some interesting points um, that I thought he would disagree with, but I at least thought were interesting conversation fodder. And yesterday I was like, what are we going to talk about? He was like, my God, I am so mad. <laughs> 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 so uh, we're going to tr- try yeah, and keep yeah. it to the content um, uh, and try and try and speak in a more general way because I don't know. I can't. I don't think we can expect to jump into this and have expect our audience Whoever's there to have watched definitely do Yeah, I definitely don't I definitely respect
1: people. And I, I don't want to sit there and just sort of, like, debunk their point of view, right? Because I don't think that that's, like, fun or interesting. Even though I have, in fact, taken two pages of notes debunking their point of view and talking in specific detail about how the examples that they're using are bad and do not support their argument. So, just in case, just in case anybody wants to know. Yes, in fact, I am right about this. But we're not gonna talk about that. well I, yeah. I promise. We're gonna talk about like the greater overall context. Yeah, I, <laughs> so 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 to be fair, I, th- I think they
0: also work as like a, a a pretty decent stand-in for a lot of things you hear about, say the Snyderverse in particular. Um But the the subject of these videos are Superman and the kind of you know one sentence summarization or some summar, some su- some summarization of Their point is effectively, Superman is a Boy Scout. When he's not a Boy Scout, you're doing it wrong. Um, And, like, satire that doesn't... Like, part of the thing that bothered me in particular is they have this point somewhere in the first video... Or the first thing that's about, like, how satire... Like, it's this thing about satire being in on the joke or not in on the joke, which... Yeah,
1: so there's this... This is the thing that I think is their fundamentally weakest point, right? Which is the assigning of intention to, like, kind of other people. Which is, like... In debate, you never do this. Like, it is seen as sort of like a faux pas because you can't – talk. You can- or like in the court of law, right? Yeah, yeah. You can't speculate on another person's sort of Intentions. frame of mind, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. And, um, and that's something that happens in here that I think is ultimately weak. I actually do like the sort of dichotomy that's set up, which is to say that, like, there is satire that is sort of uh, – in my head, there is satire that is punitive or kind of contemptuous. And there is satire that is – you know, uh, reverential, right? Yeah. Um, or sort of uh, like like adoring, right? So, for instance, we might say that The Simpsons is satire, right? It is satire of sort of the the sitcom, the family based sitcom comedies of the seventies and eighties. But I would ultimately say that it is reverential of those. You know, like it likes those, right? Um, or you know, other pieces of satire, right? Like something like um, Weird Al uh, songs. You know, yeah yeah yeah. Weird Al songs are another good example of this, right? Like they they ultimately like the thing that they are satiring, right? Or the, the and the there is also a version of this that is harshly critical, right? This is the kind of contemptuous satire. And the contemptuous satire is stuff that, you know, is really kind of attacking and denigrating the thing that it is satirizing, right? Um to think what what would I mean, be like a good exi-
0: I, I, I feel like the one that everybody learns about in high school, right? Like a modest proposal. Like that that's pretty oh, that's yeah. supposed to be critical, right? Like it's not supposed yeah, and,
1: to be. Or like in in a in a modern movie context, I would actually say Dewey Cox Walk Hard is an example mm. of this. Walk Hard does not love music biopics. It hates them. And it is, it is going hard on them, right? Uh, which I think is, you know, an interesting sort of, uh, an interesting sort of approach to, um, and, and and to be clear, both of these are valid, right? But part of my thing with the 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 OSP podcasts, um, and really my overarching point about them is that they are fundamentally myopic, right? They kind of have this refusal to understand multiple. simultaneous valid points of view or perspectives on a single character right um and there's this assertion that superman is this one thing and can only be this one thing which i think is kind of fundamentally incorrect i actually don't disagree with any of the sort of underlying take of superman is a big blue boy scout he is um you know he is a paragon who is a part of inspiring and uplifting and hopeful stories right i I very much enjoy the stories that they that they specifically cited, which were Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow, that's an Alan Moore story, which were um, what do you, For the Man Who Has Everything, which is another Alan Moore story, um, and Superman versus the Elite, which is a great pickup, by the way, from uh, a writer who I love named Joe Kelly from the late 90s, uh, or maybe early 2000s. Um, all of those are really great Superman stories, but I just kind of think it's a mistake to say Superman can only be these things, because... He can be so much more, right? Uh, the, in the same way that Spider Man can be so much more. Spider Man can be an, uh, you know, uh, Spider Man can be this sort of the teenage archetype character, right? But he can also sort of be a, a grown adult Peter Parker, right? Like there's a very famous comics run where Peter Parker is a high school. Uh, math teacher he's high school science teacher actually i think um and he is now kind of the cool teacher in this school where he used to be you know like he used to be a teenager and that actually that iconic run of peter parker going to midtown high that has been reimagined a lot over the last couple of years that's like a very old archetype of spider-man that he didn't really like engaged with all that much for most of spider-man's history he has been out of high school he has been in college you know he's been doing stuff as as kind of a young adult um in New York City and stuff like that, and so like there are just more versions of these characters than the one prescribed version that comes from the podcast. Which is like that's my overarching thing about the podcast, and kind of like the beginning of the end of like my point about you know what what they're going on. Um, but anyway, like I said, uh, I do think that there's a lot of interesting stuff in here. So where do like I don't know where do you where do you, where do you want where do you want to start? So,
0: so I, I will say that I, I have an, I have my my own thesis as to what's happening with these casts, which is a little bit more metatextual, um, Which is I think. Like, I have said this before that I think we're kind of at like an, like, we are swinging out of, like, where if
1: Nolan Batman, which they, they trash on. Um, I could not, but can I just say, I could not believe that. I yeah. have never in my life seen someone go after Nolan Batman that, that hard. The most you get is people saying the Dark Knight Rises is kind of a disappointment that doesn't really work out. And I, you know, I agree with that. Point of view, right? But like the there is such reverence for Batman Begins and The Dark Knight that it seems fucking buck wild to me that they that they went after those those movies as not appropriately Batman, right? So uh, so this is this is I, I I think this is part of it, right? This is part of my
0: my theme. like we are at a point where like if Batman if the Nolan Batman was the height of kind of like edgy superheroes. And like Marvel has been a swing through, swing through of this kind of like comedy, kind of like contempt yep. self-contemptuous. We are like winding back towards, you know, um, what's the word? Like like genuineness, maybe like you know like, like you know, we want like we're- sincerity. Yeah, sincerity. Thank you. That is what I was looking for. We we are looking for sincerity again, right? Like that's the trend that's going to be upcoming. And they're probably on like the 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 front end of that, right? Like they are sick of the rest of it. And they are trying to intellectualize their desire for sincerity as being objectively superior, rather than just being a, a soft preference, which is yeah. an easy thing to do. Um,
1: and I also think part of this is that one one of the things that also seemed buck wild is that they were commenting on, you know, film and TV that they that they hadn't seen. Right there, there's yeah. a running thing about the boys, which famously popular Amazon Prime video you know, like Amazon Prime show, The Boys, which is a incredibly contemptuous satire of superheroes. So much so that I actually think it's kind of empty calories. I I made this point on the podcast when I watched the first two seasons of The Boys a couple of months ago. You know, like, I think it's kind of no thoughts head empty. And... They're sort of right in saying that there's not a lot under, you know, underneath the surface of the boys. That's pretty true, I would say. Um, but I do think that it is compelling, good, well, like compelling, well written, well structured television, right? Even if it doesn't have all that much thematic depth and it's really just kind of about the plot level, character level stakes of can good guys defeat bad guys it's good at delivering you know it's like it's good at delivering that um and they kind of got roasted actually for talking about the boys when the both of them (laughs) hadn't actually seen the boys um and but then repeat the same problem with with Snyder stuff because you know uh Blue one of the hosts has seen Man of Steel but Red hasn't and they're talking in these ways about Man of Steel that are um I think sort of misinterpretations that have seeped into the popular consciousness that just don't align with what the movie is or sort of says, right? One of the things they talk about that drives me up a fucking wall is how in those movies Superman only saves uh, Lois Lane, which is, like, fundamentally untrue. You know, he, he saves the oil drillers, he saves the the guys in the Smallville fight. Like, the whole point of the Smallville fight is that he is saving the military you know, from uh, General Zod's aliens, and that's why in the beginning of the fight he's being attacked by the military. But at the end, he and humanity have kind of decided to trust one another and work together. And it's just like these are these are just like fundamental misinterpretations of the core plot at play, like not understanding key plot points. Uh, that you know, I, I, what what do you, what do you do with that kind of thing? Um, yeah. Well,
0: well, well, if you've got notes, why don't you go? Why don't you you know? Rattle okay. off your uh, so the, your so
1: the, so and then my the third note that I wanted to bring in before I stop shitting on this in you know this individually and in particular is um, about the nature of collateral damage. So they talk about one of the things that makes Superman uh, media compelling is the nature of collateral damage, adding an additional element of stakes to a Superman fight or, or movie, right? And this is, again, sort of like, like, a, like a little bit of a myopic thing. There's this understanding that, like, this predicate assumption that they have, which is that Superman is fundamentally all-powerful. It is not fun to just sort of watch him sit there and punch a guy over and over again, right? What you need to do is inject these extra stakes by having the fight scene be about how, how does Superman stop this thing from, you know, happening at the same time that he is trying to prevent as much collateral damage in the fight as possible right how does he stop people from dying while also punching zod is sort of is sort of the thesis that that they're given i think this is an interesting thing, and it's totally a cool approach, and it is definitely one that works, but the imagination of Superman as a character who cannot be physically challenged, or, like, who cannot be challenged on a raw power level is incorrect. And, in fact, is sort of ahistorical. Most of the time, Superman's villains are extremely powerful, such that they can actually kind of create this, um, uh, you know, like, an appropriate level of threat for him to sit there and and fight. And I would agree that Superman just punching people is kind of bad and uninteresting, right? But fights where, you know, the drama is built into the progression of that fight, something like the Zod fight in Man of Steel is a really good example of this, right? Where that fight starts with Zod wearing his armor, not being able to fly, not being able to control his heat vision, right? And the stakes of that fight get raised because Superman, who is, you know, he he has this advantage, right? Which is that he has been on Earth for 33 years, and he has acclimated to the atmosphere, and Zod hasn't done those things, or he hasn't, you know, acclimated to his powers and the atmosphere, right? But over the course of the fight, he learns to control them, right? And that's why it's so menacing when he rips his armor off, and he Flies for the first time because he's telling Superman, I am getting progressively more and more dangerous, and I am a genocidal mani- an omnicidal maniac who will destroy this planet because my fascist dreams of recreating my motherland have been, you know, defeated, and you are on a ticking time time bomb to. You're on a ticking clock to defeat me, right? Um, and even when Superman does try and take it out into space, Zod throws, you know, like a satellite at him. And it, uh, was this specifically Snyder Snoops? Uh, I'm sorry. This is a question for the chat. No, this is not specifically Snyder's Snoops, but it, it, is, it is like a mention of it. Um... And the only thing that Superman can do with Zod in that fight is to snap his neck because otherwise Zod is going to win, right? This is a lose this is a progress this is a fight where Zod is continuing to get the upper hand and he's becoming more and more dangerous. Zod's on a Superman- range timer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Zod has it range timer. Yeah, that's exactly it. And I think the stakes of that fight work raw, right? Like the 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 collateral damage isn't what give that fight stakes. It is the fact that you know, Superman is losing. He is not better than Zod. He will lose to Zod given given enough time, and he has to put Zod down now, right? Rather than you know whatever, wait or figure out some other sort of uh like figure out some other sort of solution. And so those are those are my big points about the podcast. Uh, and we can and we can kind of move on move on from there. Yeah. Well. So so, um. Yeah. what
0: we have we have talked about. Man of Steel specifically and I think we've talked about all all of these movies specifically on our episodes. So if you want to hear our detailed thoughts on any of those, go to our back catalog. We've got a lot of episodes. Um over 300 at this point. Yeah, uh, for real. Uh but do you, you said like you said you said you took notes. Do you have any do you have you you have things you want to hit on in particular or do you, you have So a,
1: one thing that I think is actually interesting is they talk about the g- getting rid of um, collateral damage in a lot of these movies, which I thought was really interesting because I actually sort of feel like the opposite is, is the case after man of Steel, There seemed to be in the culture. Anyway, there was this backlash to, um, I think it was specifically the Avengers and man of Steel back to back, but man of Steel kind of gets the flack for this, right? Uh, nobody, nobody ever goes after the Avengers for, you know, the collateral damage of the battle of New York, um, uh, where there, there was this desire to sort of see an accounting for, the collateral damage that goes into some of these superhero fights, right? Um, obviously, Civil War is kind of all about this, and I think Civil War misses the mark on this. We've talked about that, you know, in our Civil War podcast from ages and ages ago and from our review of the Marvel movies that we did last year, right? Um, and the... I
0: mean, Ultron uh, seems to be the, the the more direct one, right? Like, so, like saving yeah. people of Sokovia seems to be a very, like, kind of directly in, inspired thing. Um, yeah, but, y- exactly. But that kind of discourse.
1: And I do think that there are other pieces of collateral damage sort of consciousness that pop up in some of these other uh, Marvel movies. Um, You know, something that I'm thinking about, for instance, is the way in which in Civil War, that airport fight scene includes these lines about evacuating the airport, right? Which is actually, to be fair a very common thing from the comics it's incredibly incredibly common to read in the comics that like shield has arrived and evacuated the area so you can go you know you can go buck wild right the hulk is rampaging in downtown manhattan and you know captain america or iron man is is going to drive him into a building and he and he asks Oh, okay. have we evacuated? Nick Fury goes, over comms? Yeah, you can punch him into Grand Central Station or whatever the thing is, and and that, like that's that's a pretty common thing that happens in the comics. It's not it's not something unique to the movies necessarily, right? Um, but then I but then I also think about the way that a lot of the more recent Marvel movies have sort of framed their fight scenes away from sort of these. F- civilian population centers in a lot of uh in a lot of ways in a lot of places right um so for instance you know captain marvel is having these fights that are out in the middle of the the desert right the the whole climactic fight scene is out in the desert um there's the other fight scene that's happening in like a space station that's a that's away from you know that's away from stuff um there's that sort of consideration taken to um uh there's That consideration taken to Batman for Superman, right? Where they talk about how they're fighting Doomsday on kind of this abandoned island in between Gotham and uh, in, in between Gotham and Metropolis, right? Um, or there's like lines about how you know the city is empty and so, so you know, Doomsday's whatever things aren't aren't like causing kind of like all that much damage or or trouble, or even like in Thor. Um, in the most recent Thor movie, Thor Love and Thunder, right? There's one fight that happens in the middle of, like, the, you know, Norwegian sort of Asgard. But that's – first of all, it's a bigger fight that is happening with both – you know, it's not just Thor there. It is a bunch of Asgardian sort of guards who are there fighting these shadow monsters. And basically every other fight scene in that movie takes place out in the middle of space, essentially, right? Um, Kind of removed and away from this stuff, which makes me kind of think that maybe there is some truth to the idea – that these movies are sort of just framing themselves away from places where, you know, you kind of can put civilians in, in danger. Uh, and I kind of wonder if that's sort of like an overcorrection to sort of the, the like the, the base assumption that it is sort of like fucked up the way that the fight in Man of Steel endangered all of these lives.
0: Yeah, no, and, I, you know, I, I think to kind of steel man the, the OSP position on this, and it's one that I thought was interesting and I thought was fairly valid, it's that, like, they're doing that because the superhero fights are cool and you just want to get the civilian stuff out of the way at that point, right, because, but, like, that there is something lost when there is isn't active, like, when there isn't any active action trying to save civilians, which is, like, ostensibly what heroes are for. Um, which I thought was, was interesting and and valid to a point. And I, and I was, I was thinking the same thing, right? Like, like Ant-Man, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Shang-Chi, right? Like all those are like, if they involve civilians, it's like highly particularized civilians that are part of the conflict, right? Like it is generally not like, um, like, you know, it, it, it doesn't have a lot of like interaction with, uh, with like actual civilians, right? Like freaking Black Widow. Like they fight in in like an apartment complex and like, there's like nobody around, right? Um, and then they fight in the sky, right? Like there's like, um, or
1: like at this Russian prison, right?
0: R- right, yeah. Um, and they're not even like like really fighting in the Russian prison, right? Like it's 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 mostly just kind of an escape sequence. Um, yeah. And they're prisoners, so you know who cares? Um, which is which is kind of the attitude that the movie puts at you, not not my my own moral.
1: Yeah. Judgment. And, and and my thing with this is that. Collateral – like, my predicate assumption and the thing that I would – I attack the base version of this, which is that the deaths in Man of Steel or the Avengers or any of these movies, right, are on the individual heroes themselves, right? The people who die in Metropolis because of the Superman Zod fight, right, or the people who die in the Battle of New York are not the responsibility of the Avengers. They are the responsibility – of the villains, right? It is Zod's fault. It is the Chitauri's fault that these people, you know, died in the process of the, you know, like in these fights, right? Like to put to put this in another way, if there were no Avengers if there were was no superman let's say zod is is attacked by military you know like jets or or the police are dealing with with the Chatari fight and they miraculously somehow win would we then say that oh the united states military or oh the the, the nypd are on the hook for these deaths like no of course not right nobody is going to to put this in incredibly, like, bleak terms, nobody is going to blame the police for failing to stop collateral damage in a real-world context, right? You know, if in, in, if some terrible tragedy takes place, the police are not thrown under the bus. So I think it is weird for superheroes to be thrown under the bus in in that sort of same way, and it's this kind of... Um, it's just sort of this uh, – it's it's all built on this assumption that Superman should be better. He should be more powerful. He should be stronger, strong enough that he can be the guy to not, you know, so, have this sort of happen, which I think is just sort of like a, a so, misunderstanding of stakes.
0: So I, I don't think it's necessarily that they're blamed for letting it happen. It's that – like, so tr- traditionally the way this works out is the advantage that the villain has over the hero is that – the villain can do something that will put innocence in danger and this will distract the Mm -hmm. hero because the hero feels morally obligated to go save those people. Right. And if it feels like the heroes are not making an effort to make sure that that doesn't happen, that they're not living up to the heroic ideal. They're just not, they're just a like, well, I think you're ultimately right. Like they aren't morally culpable in kind of like a, a, a pure strict sense. Like the, the kind of like heroic myth Right demands that they put the needs of these civilians over kind of like winning the fight with the bad guy. and that's and that and that is like you know and, and them winning anyway is the triumph of heroism over over villainy. And so I think it's I, I think it's less absolute than than, than you know than, than wants to be suggested by by by, um, by OSP, but I, I do think that there's like a kernel of like you know, there has to be enough effort there for people to feel like, that was done, right? Like, this, this is, again, mm. Ultron's pretty, a pretty good example, right? Like, it is not good enough that they are just fighting off Ultron, right? They must also put in the effort to try and save a bunch of people on Sarkovia, right? And if some people happen to die, right? Like, yes, that's tragedy. And yes, the superheroes aren't responsible for that. But, um, uh, but, you know, showing the effort makes it feel like they, they did the best they could. And that effort's important, I think.
1: Yeah, I, I definitely do agree uh on that, you know, like on that level. And I also am not to not trying to attack the idea of collateral damage being like an interesting thing. I like Ultron, right? You know, famously Ultron is one of my favorite one of my favorite Marvel movies, but I do think that it is sort of denigrated along this level. A lot of people have this thing where they talk about the, the third act problem where Marvel movies are fun for kind of the first hour, hour and a half, but then they kind of fall apart in the end. And Ultron is frequently used as an example for this, and I think that this gets to another interesting piece of the collateral damage problem, which is that individualized conflicts are fundamentally more interesting than kind of environmental conflicts, right um, There one of the things that that happens when we talk about collateral damage is we're talking about like in story terms, a man versus nature, kind of man versus environment problem, right? you know there is not a functional difference between Superman, landing the space like like picking a, a plane that's falling out of the sky and landing it safely right and a disaster movie that is you know a plane gets struck by lightning or whatever and you need it and the the heroes of that movie need to find a way to to land the plane without without people dying right those are two Th- those are fundamentally the same conflict, even if the plots would be different because Superman has powers or, or whatever else, right? Like, um, And in the same way that, like... Or or a, another example of this might be, like, a, f- a disaster movie like um, uh, The Towering Inferno, right? Which is a disaster movie about a, a skyscraper that is on fire and the people in that skyscraper who need to escape. Well, that's actually pretty fundamentally similar, conflict-wise, to the, you know like, the the traditional thing of Spider-Man, you know, going into a burning building and saving people from that building, pulling, you know, children out of the top floor or whatever else, right? You know, like, those are are fundamentally the same kind of conflict. And while I think those conflicts can be good and can be interesting, they are frequently not. Because there's no one to play off of, right? You have no antagonist. There's no villain, right? Um, And I think the reason that, like... The reason that some of the collateral damage stuff falls away and the reason that there is sort of this this feeling that the third act climax of um, Ultron is ultimately not super satisfying is because of problems with that man-versus-environment conflict not really being enough to support a narrative for kind of like the modern taste of audiences, right? We want supervillains... Because we want these conflicts to be bigger and ideologically based rather than something that is fundamentally just kind of, like, a fact of life, right? In the 90s, this would actually probably have worked pretty, pretty well because the 90s is full of movies that are built on, you know, the sort of disaster movie formula, right? Um I don't know, think about, like, Dante's Peak, right? Twister, right? You know, like, these are these are movies that are about just sort of the, the disasters are happening and we have to react to them. And these are the people who are trying their best. And a lot of times there are some of these, like, kind of secondary kind of plots to them, right? Obviously, uh, Twister features kind of the... The very dumb sort of plot thread of there is a climate scientist who is doing it for essentially the clout and being very sort of dangerous with the science because he's in it for the money, not the science. That's the quote from that movie. Have you seen Twister? I have I, not. Is this reference landing for anyone but me? I, I, I have not. <laughs> it's the biggest movie of 1995. Come on.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, I'm sure it was. Uh, I was six Oh. yeah <laughs> that's true I mean I was also young I don't know I, I watched did you, it you see it on, on release? release. I no I didn't even... see it on release I saw it from like Blockbuster like my yep. dad would get it at like on you know on VHS or something like that but you know like movies like this used to be fucking huge right Dante's Peak right um, uh, which is a which is a volcano disaster movie is predicated on the it's like Jaws actually sort of is, is also sort of this thing right which is um, Dante's Peak takes place on this like mountain vista in the middle of summer and it's a it's a geothermal climate scientist who is reading the signs. And he says, this volcano that we all think is dormant is actually going to erupt. And the, you know, the, those, the mayor of the town, who's just, you know, he doesn't want to evacuate the town because this is the peak of their tourism season or whatever denies the, the request. And so he's the bad guy for those reasons. But even those, you know, those movies having those kind of antagonists and having those kinds of villains they're not ideology-driven, right? And they don't have this kind of um, philosophical core that a lot of our superhero movies are... ask like that we ask of most of our superhero movies, right? Um, we want them to be deeper and more complex than that. And you embody that by having a villain to have a true kind of, like, man-versus-man conflict rather than surrounding all of these conflicts in, uh, you know, sort of man-versus-environment. Uh, and I would actually sort of say that... That's kind of a good thing. Um I don't necessarily think I like I I would agree that it would be nice to see superheroes save people more often, right? Something I think about a lot is the train scene from Spider-Man 2, which is a probably the best collateral damage scene in any superhero movie ever, right? Where where Spider-Man Fights Doc Ock on the train. The train, you know, controls get destroyed. Doc Ock takes the opportunity to leave. And Spider-Man, who is not an incredibly powerful hero, has to figure out a way to stop this train from careening off the rails. Even though I do have to say that it doesn't make any fucking sense that there's an above-ground train in New York City, in Manhattan. They don't exist. But whatever.
0: <laughs> well, there the- is there is one in... Um, in- Queens and In Queens.
1: Queens and I think Brooklyn, actually. Um,
0: um, yeah. But, you know,
1: like obviously, it, it 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 makes for a better thing if it's yeah, this yeah. elevated train on on kind of these tracks or whatever. Like, I do think that those that those. Uh, those kinds of conflicts are are fun and interesting, and you can create real and compelling stakes out of them. Um, but I think part of that is that it is tough to co- create compelling stakes for Superman when it comes to... Like, I kind of have the opposite problem o- over what they described in the podcast, which was that Superman saving a plane falling out of the sky is fundamentally way less interesting to me than Superman fighting Zod, right? Because Zod is super heroic, right? Zod is, you know, he he has all of Superman's powers and you can give him whatever powers you want. Right. But I understand what a plane is and I understand how a plane works. And it kind of seems trivial for me that Superman would fly to this plane, you know, and just land the thing because he has super strength. And that's, that, that's how that, that's how that works. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But I, I, I think the version of this is
0: supposed to be is you're correct. There's an ideological difference here, right? And part of that ideological difference is, is, you know, the villain is willing to ignore any potential peril to innocence and the hero is not. And so that that is that is a point of contrast, right? Like, yes, I agree with you that, like, you know, a movie that is just about a hero saving people, you know, maybe doesn't have as much, uh, oomph to especially with somebody like superman who is like i, I think like I, I i agree with you that it's probably it's more nuanced than they present it but I, but i do think they have a point that like superman typically gets used as kind of like an on off switch right like as long, like he's on and he can solve basically anything because he's like a generic generically strong hero or he's got kryptonite and he's off and so he can't do anything right this is actually the the, the plot of kind of like dc league of super pets right Is like yeah Krypton i was gets actually his powers thinking about that, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, um, um, but, uh, what was I, what was I going to say? Um, but like that is being part of like the villains, you know, toolkit to oppose the hero, I think is, is legitimate. And, and also like, you know, the the villain doesn't have to like, you know, seems like the, the MCU moving in the direction of, you know, the villains don't use this so, so much as a tool against the heroes. And so you don't see it as much. And I think the argument there is is that there's something lost there, right? Like that the heroes demonstrate their heroism best when there's an aspect of saving innocence. Um, I mean, kind of like a very real concrete sense. And I think that's a, a, a weaker point than, than kind of like, um, you know, when it is happening in front of you, if you do nothing, to stop it. That is like a fundamentally unheroic thing. Um, or like unheroics too strong. Like is, is, like for a hero that is supposed to be very heroic, right? Like, and, and I will agree with you that like Superman always doesn't always have to be the paragon of virtuosity. But like, mm-hmm. if Superman ignores like if a building is falling over and Superman knows there are people in it and he just ignores it to fight Zod, right? Like, there has to be like a very good reason for that. Otherwise, it feels not like Superman, right? Like,
1: yeah, this is this is another thing that I think, um, uh, I it is. Is complicated, right? Because I actually think that these, like, these scenes happening in cities is fun, and interesting. I, I think I enjoy... Like, one of the reasons why I really enjoy Man of Steel and Batman versus Superman, just on a raw action level, and I've talked about this before, right? Like, some of these movies, Infinity War is another great example of this, right? Just on a raw action level is because they are happening in these city environments, which are very interesting and dynamic, right? right. Um, the best fight scene in Infinity War is the very first fight scene with the... What, what are they called? Like, the black marauders or something like that, right? Like Thanos' sort of disciples. Um, When the fight scene gets taken to space, right? And they're fighting on that planet. That fight scene is cool, but it is less interesting because that's when you get kind of in this in this CGI fest that that we kind of complain about and talk about when it comes to some of these sort of some of these sort of Marvel movies, right? Where it doesn't feel like anything is sort of grounded in sort of reality. The Shang Chi fight scene that I talked about, um, which I really liked, with uh, uh, was the bus fight scene, right, when he's fighting on the bus in San Francisco against these, like, whatever tech goon guys that are that are being sent after, you know, like, that are being sent after him or whatever. And I think those, basically every fight scene that I can think of that is among my favorite fight scenes of recent superhero movies, they are fights that happen in kind of immersed in this 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 city environment right you know the Batmobile chase in the Batman is a good example of this right um, uh, Black Panther the fight scene that happens at you know the fight scene that happens at the the Busan kind of underground gambling club right where the, and then the, and then that turns into a whole you know car chase where she throws the spear and stuff like that right like i think those are the scenes that i tend to enjoy the most versus the scenes that that kind of get away from uh it's like it's like in dragon ball z when they when they take the fight out to sort of nondescript arid desert you know like that's kind of when the 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 fight is essentially happening in an open it's it's the it's the dungeons and dragons version of fighting in a flat open field Right. Yeah, that makes sense.
0: That makes, sense. And, and I agree with you. It's, it's just, I don't think I don't think this the, the point mitigates or argues against like fighting in an urban environment. I think it argues against like just kind of like ignoring the stakes that could potentially be there. Right, like yeah, you, you could like you know like um, like like uh, can I cannot remember the, the the Snyder Cut is of what what's the name of the what's the name of the actual Snyder Cut movie? It's uh, it's not League of Super uh, Friends uh the justice league justice league thank you yeah justice league the justice league final battle takes place in an urban setting right it's just like a evacuated urban setting or like a non you know um because they've been doing the whole like yeah thing for a long time um but yeah um yeah do you have do you have other other notes you want to hit
1: no, that was my big thing about the, that was my big thing about collateral damage was you know, this the difference between sort of these man versus environment and man versus man conflicts. I do want to say that Lou in the chat said I watched Twister like seven times. It's the Oklahoma version of all the movies filmed in LA where the timeline and locations make no sense if you know the area.
0: <laughs> that sounds about I'm glad right. that it
1: happens to to people that are just that are not just me.
0: Yeah. I mean, hey, that that uh I, I have not seen it, but The Social Network is is that for for Hopkins students apparently. Yeah, um, you know that was you, you know that one of our friends was an extra in that movie, right? Really, no. My, Mike mm. Zicardo was 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 uh, was an extra in The Social Network. <laughs> uh, okay, cool. Well, the, the, yeah, because so for people that don't know, they they filmed that movie on our campus, our sophomore year of, of college. Yeah, um, and. Uh, because you're
1: famously not allowed to film in Harvard. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Um, and we have the same architecture. Um, but, yeah. Um, did you have any particular other notes that you wanted to get to? Uh, okay, on, yeah. yeah.
1: So uh, another thing that I want to talk about a little bit was the, was the sort of the, the satire piece. Um, because I think – so outside of this intentions problem that is just kind of like a – I don't know. Like a fallacious point, I guess. Am I calling them on like a logical fallacy here? Like an in internet, you know, debate, bro. Uh, I guess kind of, right? But like yeah. outside of outside, like outside of that aspect of it, um, I do think that there is sort of a there's a positive use case for contemptuous satire that I kind of feel like gets left in the in the dirt a little here, right? Right. This is agree part that. of my Yeah, which is, like, part of my thing about, like, Dewey Cox, like, yes, I think Dewey Cox hates formulaic music biopics and is really taking, you know, like, it's not the meanest satire I've ever seen. Like, I'm sure there's something that is just, like, there's some satire out there that, that I'm sure is just absolutely like fucking brutal to the people who it is kind of attacking and going after um south South park uh, is a
0: pretty classic example of like their topic of the week right like
1: yeah yeah i'm just trying to think of like i i feel like i have come on the podcast before and i have said this is the most brutal satire i have seen in years right which is just something that is like going so hard on taking down some specific aspect of kind of, like, our, you know, like, our culture. Um, And there is stuff worthy of contempt and resentment in our culture that is worthy of that level of, you know, sort of uh, satirical sort of uh, attack. Sure, sure. Um, I
0: mean, and, like, and, you know, I don't think there needs to be a worthiness component, right? I think that's, like, a legitimate expression of criticism, right? Like, I, I just fundamentally don't agree with the idea that satire has to be coming from a pace of appreciation in order to get it right. Um, Yeah. I I just think that's, that's plainly wrong. And I, I also think, I think part of the problem is too, is like you can have like, there is so much, there are so much, so many comics out there. There's so much Superman out there. Right. Yeah. And you can write a satire of the worst Superman writing and have it be an effective contemptuous satire, even if it doesn't work as a satire of better Superman writing. Right. Like, there's just so so much and some of it so much of it is widely known right like um, the kind of like what's it like the low resolution image of what superman is is like well defined is, is like simultaneously well defined enough and like not concrete enough that like you can do a very kind of like basic satire of it and have it be legible to people right like which mm-hmm. which is the ultimate like kind of test for a piece of satire, right?
1: Um, yeah. Oh, actually, I do have a great piece of satire that is incredibly contentious. It is uh, the death of Stalin is a good example of this. The, the death of Stalin is like a is, is a comedy movie from a couple of years ago that is based on the true events of Stalin. You know, the obviously the dictator of the Soviet Union. Um, what happened when he died and in the immediate aftermath of his ev- of of his death but like obviously that satire is really not pulling his fucking punches with how awful he was and how awful kind of the the totalitarian authoritarian regime of the ussr was um at you know like at the time. And I think, you know, that movie is great. There's actually probably a bunch of these now that I'm thinking about it. Oh, you know
0: what pops in my head? Um, I saw on Twitter the worst take, which is like Team America World Police glorifies like the Iraq war. And it was like, what are you talking about? <laughs>
1: <Did> you- no. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Like everybody. How I- do you not just delete your entire <laughs> social history? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I would be so embarrassed <laughs> if I made that point. <laughs> it's so embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> so, such yeah, is the realm of Twitter, North right? right? Like, another great example. Right. Holy shit. Fuck. Yeah, yeah. Oh, actually another word another version of this is uh who's the guy Adam McKay, you know like he made the big short, he made oh, the yeah. the movie about Dick Cheney Vice um, uh you know I think he just made that movie about Netflix that I haven't watched because Oh, oh,
0: it's it's, it's the climate change one. Yeah, yeah, the climate
1: change one, dude. Climate anxiety sucks. Like I can't even engage with with a movie like that just because it's going to make me existentially depressed, right? Um and it's just like that satire is so Mean, But, like, the targets are so worthy of, you know, like, of this level of contempt. All of that stuff, I think, is good, right? Yeah. You know, all of that, all of those... um, Don't look
0: up. Lou says in the chat, yes, that is it. Don't look
1: up, yes. Right? But, like, another piece of satire that I think is great and and adoring and another movie that came out in the not-too-distant past, Teen Titans Go to the Movies! It's all about satirizing these superhero movies, and it's basically a kid's show, right? You know, like, it's rated G, and they're doing all of these bits, some of which are pretty dark... About like you know, <laughs> Robin pushing Martha and Thomas Wayne down Crime Alley, and then giving a big <laughs> thumbs up to the team. <laughs> like, you know, it's a pretty dark joke, but it's fundamentally like very adoring, right? And, and it likes it likes superhero movie media. It's it, it's taking taking the piss. You know what I mean? It yeah. is. It is. It is. Uh, Good, good-hearted, and good-natured when it comes to when it comes to this stuff, and so that was a big thing that I that I just wanted to sort of like clarify and talk about, um, or it's just sort of the. Um uh, the interaction between those two different kinds of of satire and where where we might think of it as kind of like worthy or un you know like worthy or unworthy um, in sort of the specific context because I do think that there are also pieces of satire that are bad because they are sort of going after I guess I would say like dumb or or lame kind of targets in the culture i feel like this is an example of something that happens most commonly inside of episodes of television right like maybe like i'm thinking like community probably has a couple of episodes that are like this. like maybe the christmas episode where they where it's the the whole thing is just about satirizing glee i actually kind of like that episode though but like you know like there are things in um where it's just like Come on, who cares? Like that's not Yeah, or, or it's things, not funny to go after that, right? Or it's or it's things that are kind of like I,
0: I think part of a lot of that is like things that are like in the moment, right? Like, you know, like maybe like like let's say we, we go back and do a community episode, which we've been talking about doing at some point, right? Mm-hmm. And we go watch it episode, we're like, yeah, this is kinda of like whatever. But like I also do remember when Glee was like the height of the culture, right? Like when it was like yeah. on everybody and so like at that point in time it makes sense. But like you kind of like lock that episode to that point in time in terms of its relevance um which is yeah like, maybe
1: there's like I, it's got to be oh I, a good version of this is south park with man bear pig right i don't think anybody they have like basically apologized for that episode because like yeah we all agreed climate change is real and al gore was right you know what i mean like it's just like there, there, there are times where i do think that this stuff falls flat but i think it falls flat because like You know, comedy ages pretty poorly, and especially as this stuff can
0: age pretty poorly. Yeah, it can age Age pretty pretty poorly, poorly.
1: right? And as this stuff kind of like evolves over time, it's just kind of like, oh, no, like uh, it it becomes cringy. Is really what it comes down to, right? You know, it's just just like, oh, god, that's a that's not a good joke. Like that's the yeah. premise for this whole episode. It's pretty dumb and bad. Right. So I think there are a couple of
0: things here. One, like there, there are, there are jokes that are going to align and not align with certain values. Right. Like you know, mm. you, can, you can see this in any piece of kind of like a culture war yeah. media where like, you know, the, a thing will happen and both, both sides will be like, yeah, we totally owned your side. And both sides will like take that away in like in complete total faith in their own side. Right. Like, it's not like they're making it up. Um, yeah. Yep. Um, but I think, um, uh, uh, another piece of this is besides just kind of like, uh, the recency and, and, and the, and the, the, uh, values, uh, shift of it is there's, um, how do I, how do I want to put this? Um, sorry. I, if you have something you want to say, say it while, while I try and try to phrase this in my um.
1: Yeah, I also think that there is satire that is unsophisticated and therefore unfunny. Uh, maybe a good example of this might be: Have you ever tried to watch *Disenchantment* on on Netflix, which is uh, a sort of a satire of these like fantasy um, shows like *Game of Thrones* or whatever? Is is, um, is this
0: the uh, Matt Greening one? Yeah,
1: it's the Matt Groening one, but it's mostly kind of a spiritual successor to Futurama, right? Like, it's kind of porting right. over a bunch of sort of, like, Futurama. And I, I remember watching the first season of that, and because it that it had nothing to do with the target, right? Like, obviously, you can make a satire of sort of these fantasy shows, and I'm sure it's great and super funny, right? Um, you know, there's a movie called Your Highness um, that came out. I don't know, 10 years ago or something. I watched it with Sarian, of all people. Uh, that movie is great. That movie is super funny. And it is a huge send-up of, of these sorts of uh, like fantasy shows and fantasy movies, right? Uh, the thing that Disenchantment kind of lacks is that it's just like sort of an un- uninteresting, unsophisticate, unsophisticated satire. It's not actually finding the funny in in what it's going after, right? Like, the inherent comedy, the quality of the jokes in Teen Titans Go! to the movies are good because it's funny on its face to have Robin, you know, to, to have one version of the joke where Robin admonishes Thomas Wayne for taking his son down Crime Alley, and then another version of the joke where Robin pushes Thomas Wayne down Crime Alley, right? Like, those are two good bits, just kind of like... Uh, on, on like a raw kind of comedy level, uh, and I think that there's a lot of satire that is also sort of just kind of like half baked and uninteresting because it isn't funny and it doesn't take it doesn't go the extra mile to present a funny thing to do with its premise.
0: Yeah, so I so I think the thing you're you're kind of like pointing at is uh, a kind of like a you know a, a very kind of basic like you know i get that reference level of humor which isn't like you yeah know, yeah like you have to like have a joke on top of it beyond just kind of like the reference to the thing that happened um but the thing that i was that i finally remember what i was thinking of i have said this controversially before maybe not the most artfully expressed but this thing about like jokes need to be relatively accurate to their source material um which is like you know if if you know if robin had pushed Um, you know, pot and Martha Kent down the crime alley. Right. It'd be like, like maybe there's an absurdism humor to that, but like, that's not, you know, that's, that's not a joke because it's wrong. It's like, not what happens. Like, that's not the, the, like an inaccurate telling of the joke. I think part of with, and like, that's obviously that that's very obvious, but I think with satire, you run the risk of like, and this, this I think is, lends a little bit of legitimacy to the OSP point, which is like, if you don't fundamentally, like if you're if you're not fundamentally satirizing like a a relatively accurate version of the character, then it kind of misses the mark. And I think there's levels to this too, right? Like if you satirize kind of like the popular conception of the character, that isn't maybe quite tr- true to the people who actually are like super fans of it. That'll land for like a general audience, but it won't land for people who care about it, right? Like, um, like uh, what's what what's a good example, right? Like you know you know, um, Batman, right? Like, uh, you know, Batman, maybe Batman doesn't kill people is an example of this, right? Like, you know, you have a joke where like Batman just cut like the Batman equivalent or whatever, and whatever satire you're doing, just like shoots people in the face, right? Like maybe you can pull some comedy out of that for a general audience. But like, if you're like a super Batman, fan, you'd be like, well, actually he was not that, uh, you know, that, that kind of like, as not about killing people in like a way that's like, I'm, I'm I'm not coming up with a good example for this, but like, there's a point at which the satire won't ring true because it doesn't feel right, but that, like, may, might be, like, individual-specific. Th- th- yeah. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I definitely I definitely get that, and I definitely feel that. I also think that there's a, a version of this which is, like, not necessarily about jokes and humor, but just about kind of the uh, sort of the fundamentals of the medium itself. So, for instance... Um, man i don't have a, like i'm trying to think of what's some serious satire that that we could talk about because the, the boys is a good example of it i guess to a certain extent um i almost want to say the, the watchman maybe yeah Watchmen is sort of on this level as well i mean i don't know Watchmen sort of fails just kind of uh like the Watchmen tv show is something i'm thinking about like that just kind of felt like it felt it failed on a plot level it didn't really fail on yeah. like a satire level right yeah um, if if your,
0: if your satire gets gets serious enough it gets called a deconstruction and it's different it's like put in a different category yeah, uh, yeah which is like, but, the- like
1: I do, but these exist and they are like good and in, and interesting sometimes right like even something like invincible which I wouldn't say invincible is a satire because I think that the fundamental perspective of invincible is uh, the invincible the TV show is um, is Mark who is a kind of earnest upstanding hero who is trying his best but it is sort of a tragedy because he's trying his best in a tough sort of stakes-filled world that is out to get him and and hard for him to deal with right um whereas uh uh something like the boys is also satire but like the boys is kind of just is it's less about Superheroes as a... Well... It's it's medium. It's less about superheroes as kind of like a like a story thing and more about sort of the world building, if that makes sense. Um whereas it's like uh you know, it's not it's not about the plot of a superhero movie being about good versus evil. There isn't really a lot of talk about villains, for instance, or you know, like the typical kind of plots of a superhero story. Like there might be individual scenes. There's there's mention uh in one in one of these OSP episodes where they talk about a scene where there is a hijacking that happens on a plane um and the superheroes kind of like fuck it up and they have to essentially destroy the plane and let it go down in order to in order to like cover their own asses that's kind of a satire of an individual sort of like superhero scene right but it's not like the boys is a satire of a superhero show right um in the way that we would expect for something like uh, like like Arrow or The Flash or something or like Superman and Lois, right? Which might be you know like these are sort of mainstream superhero shows. The Boys is not trying to satirize those shows. It's just trying to set its characters in a world in which superheroes exist and kind of take that as a you know as a given to build its stories off of, um, which is which is a different interaction, right? Um, I think part of that is it's, it's very hard to build like long form
0: satire right like like you you, like you know uh, there's a lot of great like short satire in, like say robot chicken but that's like you know very short sketches that are like satirizing very particular elements because you
1: or even if it has continuity like rick and morty has satirizing has episodes that satirize these specific elements right like there's the um it's called like the Revengers or like the Revengeers or something where they satirize superheroes. Uh, but that's like one episode, right? Like yeah. it's just one episode bit, right? And then the next episode, they're going to satirize John Wick with Pickle Rick or whatever else, right? Yeah. Um, um,
0: community's much the same way, right? Like, they're, yeah. yeah um, you know, it's kind of, it, it is a, it, the, actually the community might be actually a, a pretty good example because it's like, on the whole, it is a satirization or it is, it's a sitcom, but it's kind of like also like, a satirization slash deconstruction of like a lot of sitcom, sitcominess, right? Um, which lets it stay funny, I guess. Um, uh, but then there are individual episodes that are like very kind of like directed, take you know, pointing, pointing at like you know particular elements, right? Like, you know, like
1: yeah. And and something else that I think is interesting is there are there is a certain brand of satire that becomes the thing. That will then get set sa- like it, it'll, satirized later. Yeah, it, it'll right? mantle. Game of Thrones is actually a very good example of this. When Game of Thrones came out, it's almost a, a satire of Lord of the Rings, right? Which is the sen- which is like the the dominant kind of fantasy. You know, this is in the middle of the Hobbit movies. It's a very high fantasy kind of heroism, optimism kind of. Um, Uh, hope first sort of property and game of thrones is the opposite of that right when it comes out right but then as it takes over the zeitgeist and it takes over the way that we conceive of fantasy now we have house of the dragon coming out and rings of power coming out and these are shows that are just that are in that in that same vein as game of thrones but we would call those satires right we would say those are just straight up the thing right we would even say later seasons of game of thrones are just straight up the thing right yeah um i I
0: mean i think it'd be i think it's a little weird to call call game of thrones like a satire. like game of thrones is not like intentionally going after those tropes right like it's just
1: kind of like a a very grim world but i i i I see your point um yeah i i think about stuff like how in a normal show ned stark would have gotten off yeah And in Game of Thrones, he gets his head chopped off, right? Right. In a normal show, you know, you have, like, magic and, like, and you have, like, magic and prophecy, right? These heroism, like, these heroes and chosen ones who are coming through, but in Game of Thrones, those those are aspects of the show that, you know... Melisandre thinks Stannis is the prince that was promised but he's not he's just another guy and he dies because he takes a stupid battle at a stupid time and gets run over by Ramsey Bolton's forces right like that kind of stuff I feel like is, is maybe satire is a little bit too strong for it right but it's just kind of um uh, when when Game of Thrones first came out, I feel like it wouldn't be strange for someone to say the first season of Game of Thrones is a satire of Lord of the Rings um, or is or, or or that kind of genre of high fantasy. But now it is the default way in which we present fantasy, right? Um, which I think is interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think I think maybe
0: um, I think like like the, I, I so I, I get your point, but I think there are probably stronger examples. Like my, my mind keeps going back to say like The Simpsons right or like maybe like the muppet show right which are like take 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 that like the takedowns of like you know traditional formats that then kind of like get solidified as, as their own kind of thing um like you know the simpsons i think is supposed to be like a parody of like you know like feel good family sitcoms from like the earlier era, era um in, in a certain way and now it's like its own thing that gets its own its its, it's own uh takedowns uh if that makes sense but yeah but i i uh I, I think your point is is, is well received that there's this kind of like uh, you know uh content treadmill <laughs> that that kind of like moves things from like um uh, any, anything long form enough will will become enough of a thing to to be to be satirized or to have the potential to be satirized I guess yep yeah do you have anything else you want to talk about with on, on this topic before we move into our weeks
1: uh you know I just wish people. Would comprehend the Snyder movies on their own on their own level. Yeah, <laughs> it just it bothers me so much hearing stuff like in in Man of Steel, Superman doesn't save anybody because it's just so. Watch the movie. It he, of course he does. He's he does all over the movie. He is he is saving people, right? Like, uh, but there's this popular conception of what that movie means, um, and you know, and kind of represents, and uh, it is. I don't know yeah yeah it's just yeah. I, I, I am kind of I do kind of wonder about like
0: you know like I do think that they are trying to intellectualize like the desire for um like more sincere movies which is like not a thing necessarily like you can just be like I prefer this thing right like' I've actually another thing I've been seeing on Twitter is like you know like some something that's like you know edgy and it's like everything is hopeless and it's like Ah, the man. The, the man was strong and like saved his friends because he is good and that is good. And it's like you know, like the, you know, like the Chad bearded man face, right? Like, I I think I think the culture is slowly swinging, or slow. I think it's actually kind of rapidly swinging back in that direction. Um, and I think some people feel like they have to have like a uh, like a, a strong back, like a, like a, a, a they have to have theory backing that in order to justify what what is ultimately a a, a preference choice. Um, yeah. Um, you know. and I do and I do get that and I agree, I agree yeah. with it, right?
1: Like. Even even though I love these, these Snyder movies or whatever, um, I think there is a fundamental sort of, not insincerity, but uh, like to both Marvel and DC of the early 2010s, there is this problem of the Marvel movies are so stuck in bathos humor that they're never taking themselves seriously, right? And the DC movies are sort of uh, like so concerned with stakes and drama that they aren't... They're stressful, is maybe what I would say, right? Like there's a certain amount of stress that goes into watching Man of Steel in Batman vs Superman because those movies are meant to be thrilling, right? Rather than uh, meant to be sort of uh, uplifting. I don't know. Yeah, uplifting, right? Would be, and so I do think that there is space for this in the culture, and I, I. Would argue that there are like there are movies that are uplifting, right? Shazam is a pretty good example of this, Uh, even though Shazam is also dark as fuck. Like when Billy Batson finds his adoptive mother and she says, "Oh, um, I don't actually want to hang out with you," right? Like that's a pretty dark moment in that movie. But like I think stuff like uh, uh, Aquaman, Shazam are ultimately like pretty, you know, DC League of um, Super Pets. DC League of Super Pets, right? Yeah, uh, you know, like these are ultimately like pretty uplifting uh, movies that are uh, that are just like not a slog to sort of watch in the same way that, like, you know, I think like I as much as I love the Snyder Cut, it sort of has more in in common with like the Social Network or like Schindler's List, you know, like you know, but the, it, it is a heavier comparison. movie. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. It's the Snyder just... Cut is the is, is the equivalent <laughs> to Schindler's List. Money Sola 2022. It's like, you know, like these are heavy movies. I am not always in the in the mood to sit down and watch a heavy movie that is going to that is going to sort of like drag me down on that level. I've talked about this before when it comes to TV, right? Like there are times when I want to go watch uh, episodes of television and I just can't. I started rewatching The Sopranos or whatever, and I just kind of quickly burnt myself out on watching the sopranos because just like oh this is so heavy god it and then i started watching what we do in the shadows which is like a light funny sitcom and it's like that's that's the kind of that's the kind of uh yeah i don't know that's that's the kind of thing i also think that uh, that the marvel movies have not been that in a long time i felt when was the last time i watched a marvel movie that kind of felt like a fun romp right uh, i don't know man Ant Man, the original yeah. Ant Man from twenty whatever twenty fourteen like <laughs> twenty fifteen.
0: Uh, yeah. But uh,
1: have you seen Everything Everywhere All At Once? I have not actually. You should oh, watch we, it. We, I, I had intended to see it, but then I just I don't know. I never got around. Yeah, to it. you should you should watch it at some point. It is
0: very good and like kind of like it's in a weird weirdly it's, it's a way in a way it's like a movie about like straddling the divide like you know like crossing from like. You know, hopeless nihilism to, like, kind of, like, hopeful nihilism. It, it, it's a very good and interesting movie. Um, uh, Lou in the chat says, A little sincerity to balance out our constant ennui and despair. Go away. Let me wallow. Which, uh, which, which feels, about, uh, feels about right. Hey,
1: I will say, the most sincere movie franchise I can think of at the moment, actually, The Fast and the Furious. Those movies are sincere as fuck. They're about family. It's just about, like, maybe, maybe there's something to that. Maybe there's something there. People who don't find it in DC, they don't find it in Marvel, but you better believe they find it with Dominic Toretto's crew. dying it all does come for, it all comes full circle yeah well you know just to play to see next week we're planning on doing uh, uh fast and furious tokyo drift so if you want a little sincerity in your life uh you know i got a, i got a story about a street racing kid from texas whose life is upended as he goes to live with his dad in Tokyo, right? Like,
0: <laughs> do, do you like, like this movie so much? Cause you ended up living in Japan for like a short while while you were a young There person.
1: is actually more truth to that than you might think, because I was in fact, an American kid who did go live in Tokyo and went to, uh, a, you know, uh, like, like a Tokyo school or whatever, um, where there were Gaijin, right? And, and stuff like that. Uh, but obviously I did not get involved in the Tokyo street racing underground scene because I was 10 and Pokemon was a thing. So that's what my life revolved around. <laughs> uh, buddy's life Honestly, is playing <laughs> the six degrees of Dominic Toretto. <laughs> yes, yes! I and Listen, all I know, listen, Jason Momoa is in the next Fast and Furious movie, which I am very worried about because F-10 was supposed to be directed by Justin Lin, who is the godfather of this franchise, right? And he basically walked off set 10 days into filming, and I don't know what's going to happen after that, and I'm very worried about it. But listen, Jason Momoa is in the next Fast and Furious movie, and I'm happy about that. That's, that's all I wanted to say. Fair enough. Well, buddy... That was your week, God. How was my week? Honestly, all I did was play fucking Total War Warhammer Three. I am finally kind of over the cusp of Total War Warhammer Three. After putting, let's let's just take a let's just take a look. How many hours did I put in in the last two weeks? In the last two weeks, I've put in a hundred hours of Total War Warhammer Three, which is four days. So ninety five point eight hours, actually almost four days entirely, of <laughs> of the last fourteen days, four of them have been spent playing Total War Warhammer. Would you look at that? I am now up to two hundred and sixty four global hours of Total War Warhammer three, which actually is kind of interesting. I wonder what like, what does that what does that put my overall? You know, uh, it's kind of put it like way up there in terms of my um, overall overall like most played games right yeah so my wow it is it is already number three so number one total war warhammer 2 927 hours stolaris at 280 hours and then total war warhammer 3 at 264 hours which i'm sure will be eclipsed sometime in the not too distant future i have in fact been playing other stuff though um that's only seven hours per day really fuck that fucks me up. I mean, basically, the past two weekends has just been me waking up, going to my computer, and playing Total War from dusk till dawn. Or from dawn till dusk. So, I get it. And also, basically, every night ends with me at, like, midnight loading up Total War and then playing till 4 a.m. So, it definitely makes sense that this is, that this is the case. Um, weirdly enough, I have not actually beaten the game. Uh, or Actually, this is, this is kind of a complex thing. That we can maybe talk about. Who knows? One of the things that they did in Total War Warhammer 3 was they changed the victory conditions for most of the races. So basically what they said was for every race in the game, there is a short victory, right? Which is which is faction specific. So it is specific to your legendary lord, right? Um and it typically represents maybe like 10 hours of play, right? Which is just defeat your, you know, defeat your immediate enemies. Um, defeat your uh, your kind of like take control of sort of the immediate, um the the immediate surrounding area and fulfill a couple of small objectives right uh it's pretty quick and in most of my games i have fulfilled the short campaign victory pretty effortlessly um outside of outside of one which has a special case because of how i was supposed to destroy a faction and instead i made a military alliance with them and they have been my best friends for hours and hours and i just haven't broken the alliance yet um then there is the long campaign victory, which is specific to the race, right? So for Skaven, it is you need to hold a bunch of the, these special Skaven, you know, settlements, right? You need to hold Skaven Blight or Hell Pit or um, uh, you know, uh, 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 Kazakh Kazek Orud or whatever, which is like the the Skaven settlement for um clan moors you know and so so it's that stuff right it is the it is you know just making sure that like you are doing stuff on a race-wide level rather than just a specific faction level um that tends to you know interact with some of these things so for instance when it came to uh when it came to my playthrough of the Greenskins, i had to destroy a bunch of dwarf factions because these guys are you know Super mortal enemies, and you need to make sure that the dwarfs are not around anymore if you are going to get a long, what is called a long campaign victory, um, for, for the, the green skins. Neither of those, the campaign victories, though, give you the, I'm sorry, neither of those, um... Uh, they they don't give you sort of like the game over screen, right? which is where you get the time lapse. You get like a little you get a little thing at the end, shows you all your stats and it does the time lapse. The thing that gives you the time lapse is what is called, I think the ultimate campaign victory, which is after about a hundred turns, there is this end game scenario that spawns. and that is sometimes the dwarfs, it is called a, a grudge too far, right? Where the dwarves just go absolutely fucking ape shit and just like kick the door down and beat the shit out of everybody, right? Uh, or vampiric ascension is another one, right? Which is uh, which is just the vampires uh, go absolutely ape shit and and kick the shit out of everybody, right? There's also one for the wood elves. There's also one for the black pyramid of Nagash, which is a uh, which is a tomb king's sort of flavored victory condition. And then there's also one that's called the Endless Wa, which is. Um, uh, a greenskin flavored like like ultimate campaign uh end game scenario. Uh they've said that they that they're planning to do more of these that there will be more campaign scenarios uh for different, you know, like different races going down in the future. They have they have certain um Kind of ideas for how they want those to to play out over time, which I think is actually pretty fucking sweet, right? Like, it's neat to not know. It actually reminds me of Solaris, and I'm sure this is where they got the idea from, right? Where you don't know what your endgame crisis is going to be when, you know, like when you start the game. Um, and you might have to react to that dynamically, right? So, like, for instance, one of the things that, that's happened when it comes to uh, my games is I have the vampires who are who are kind of going nuts. And one, one of the things that does is it spreads vampiric corruption over all, the, the whole world, right? Everywhere in the world has ten vampiric corruption. You just kind of have to deal with that. And you have to make these, like, small little gameplay, imp- you know... uh you 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 just have to re- react to those things um, so that so that you are approaching the the problem appropriately, right? Fighting dwarfs, which is a very like they're very they're very elite infantry very armored right you need to you need to stack up on a lot of armor piercing damage if you want to if you want to like beat down the dwarfs or whatever right that's different than if you're fighting the greenskins who typically have lower tier infantry but they're cheaper and in the and in the endless wide they they all have an extra stack kind of a company so you always sort of have to be fighting against 40 units including reinforcements right that kind of thing and i just think that that, that all that stuff is interesting and my I have a whole spreadsheet for this, which I'm tracking. My thing is I cre- get victory when I get the ultimate campaign victory and not sooner, right? Uh, when you get the short victory and the long victory, you actually get campaign buffs. So, for instance, you might get plus three recruit rank on all of your units for the sh- short campaign victory, right? Or if you do the long campaign victory, you might get... um. Uh, if you do the long campaign victory, you might get the... Uh, you make it like plus 10 on any new, like plus 10 recruit rank on any lord that you recruit, right? Something like that that it kind of affects your your global ability to sort of play the game. Um, but my my thing is I I go for the short victory first, then I go for the long victory, then I go for the ultimate victory. And that's when I consider a campaign to have been won and to be done and to be over. Right, uh, So that's my, that's my I don't know, Total War Warhammer 3 update for the last 100 hours in the last two weeks of playing. Yeah, very
0: cool. Um, yeah, um, on my side, um, I put a little bit of time into this game called Asanso, which is a, uh, it's if you've ever heard of Verdun, it's like by the same developers. In fact, you can switch between the games in the, in the client. Um, it's, it is a World War One shooter set on the uh, Italian front. Um, And so almost every gun is a bolt-action gun, um, or, or a a pistol, um, it's got some, it's like not a running gun shooter, um, it's interesting, it held my attention for a little while, I don't know how much time I'm gonna put into it in total, but, you know, wanna shoot some people with some bolt-action rifles, it's a good game for that, um, and so um, I can give that a soft recommend, if, especially if you're doing like World War One shooters and those like classic style of, uh, of shooters. Um, it does like the dedicated server model, which does, like, I think they're almost all hosted by the company. So it doesn't have that kind of like server culture thing that you sometimes get, but um, it's still super fun. Um, another thing is I've been playing a lot of Rumbleverse um, and I've just been like consistently getting my shit pushed in. Like I'm at the killer's level and, you know, you need to be careful um, and I'm slowly adapting to that. But there's just like a lot there, a lot to learn, a lot to, to play with. It's been super interesting, kind of like on one hand, developing a style, and two, just, just dealing with like the realities of like if you screw up once, like that's like can be like most of your health. Thinking about playing around, like what, how I want to build my protein pod setups, um, how I want to deal with certain encounters. Um, the thing that's consistently frustrating about the game is that, like, it's very easy to be third-partied, which, you know, that's typical of, uh, of a BR, but, like, it's what it, it just feels bad when, like, you win a tough encounter, and then, like, you immediately get, like, you know, body slammed by someone who was waiting for, for your encounter to end, and it picks you off, and, you know, I guess it's part of the game, but, like, it is, it is it is frustrating makes me excited to like go play some fighting games at some point. Like maybe I'll go back to strive or like we've been getting a bunch of information about uh, street fighter six, uh, which looks super cool. Um, uh, the other big thing I did this week is I watched both of the gameplay streams of Victoria three um, from, from out of paradox. Uh, that game looks super fucking cool. Um, uh, I have not played Vicky two, but like it just feels like it's, 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 you know, it's a bunch of, it's, you know how, like, you talk about how Stellaris is, like, this big optimization problem? Yeah. Uh, it feels like Vicky is that, but, like, turned up to 11. Um, like, that's, like, most <laughs> of the game. Buck, yeah, let's go! <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, it's super... It's It looks super... It's, you know... Uh, I did not realize, like, how kind of... Like, I feel like Crusader Kings 3 and EU 4 obviously, are very different games. But I feel like Vicky 3 is... But, like, it, there's obviously some commonality there. <clears throat> Excuse me. I feel like Vicky 3 is like a step further away um from both of those games cuz like you know uh like war is a thing that happens but it's not like it's kind of more like a means to an end than it is like, you know, it, it's a, its own thing. It's kind of like you have to do this to kind of like get colonial resources or like maybe like colonize a particular place, but like you're you're mostly doing it to like Feed Your Trade Engine, which is what the game seems to be mostly about. Um, or your, your your economic engine, right? It's not all... A lot of it's trade-based. It's interesting because, like, the second stream is, uh, is the Japanese shogunate. And they're, like, isolationists. You know, if, if you know your history, mm-hmm. you know, Matthew Perry comes over at some point and, like, busts open Japan. But before that, they're isolationists. Um, and they, they talk about how, like, you know, it's hard to get this economy up and running or, like... There are things that are easier because we've got a lot of the resources on the island and we don't have to worry about like foreign markets growing with our prices. But we have to do everything ourselves. And, you know, that caused a lot of problems. Um, it's also funny because because they are trying to do things on this three hour stream schedule, they like intentionally f- foment a civil war so they can like knock the Shogunate down a peg. It's super fun to watch. Um, but, yeah, um, I'm super hyped for that game. That's like probably my most anticipated game of the, uh, of the year at this point.
1: So oh. it has a release date now, right? October
0: 25th, yes.
1: October 25th, okay. We will definitely have to play that. Yeah. I, 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 I have been not paying attention to this. I'm sorry if you guys are hearing Orion we, right I, now. He's we can't hear
0: him, but we can see him. He is very cute. Okay.
1: <laughs> Hello, little boy. Um, so, uh, yeah, I am, I am definitely very interested in Vicky 3 as a longtime lover of you know Europa Universalis. The thing that I'm interested about, Vicky, is... Um, is sort of the metastization. It's a weird word. I don't know why I used it. Well, I guess I do because it makes sense. The metastization of your colonies rather than the kind of construction of them, right? So, for instance, in Europa Universalis, which starts in, you know, 1444, um, you are right at the kind of the beginning of colonization and it transitions out. Like, the end game of Europa Universalis is sort of where you get to, it's honestly, I think it's like, Seventeen, eighteen, or something, right? Like, you, you know, and most games never even get to this point right. when you're playing Europe Universalis, right? Um, where, you know, you just kind of drop out and drop away from uh the you know whatever your colonization efforts sort of sort of were um and so you kind of set up and claim these territories and that is most of the colonization engine but you're not actually uh administering your colonies all that much they just kind of happen there's so few people there that it doesn't really matter and you're fighting these like wars in mainland Europe right where kind of the big thing is is the the techno- technological progression through kind of the gunpowder kind of like age or whatever right but in a world where you're sort of starting in god when does vicky... 1830 something i think it's 1835 really wow that's actually much sooner than i would have expected that must mean that Europe Universal is go farther than i remember um 1830s shit yeah wow that's after napoleon they didn't want to do napoleon and vicky wow whatever okay it's fine um you know, like, that is where, you know, you have these colonies that are deeply, deeply established, right? You know, you already have colonies in, uh, you know, the British Raj. You have colonies in um, in Africa and in uh, the United States and, and South America that have been running for, like, years and years. Obviously, you know, the United States is a new nation, right? You can play the United States. Wow, that's actually going to be kind of crazy. I was expecting I was expecting it to be before then. I was expecting it to be, like, 1700s. 1836 to 1936. Right in wow. time to pick up pick up,
0: HOI four. Um, uh, do they like? When, do, when does EU four end? That's actually an interesting question. When does EU four end? Uh, up until uh,
1: January eighteen twenty one. Wow. So. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That is that is interesting. Yeah. I. You know. It must be one of those things where I don't think I ever played that deep. I must have just eventually just kind of gotten bored with playthroughs where you know you're just like making insane amounts of money or whatever else and not and not going going to that uh, going to that level. So that is super interesting. Uh, anyway, I am very interested to see what would Vicky ends up looking like, especially because I recently played Anno eighteen hundred, which is sort of built on the same foundation, though obviously Anno eighteen hundred is not um, a. Uh, NO 1800 is not a game that is about real like simulate simulating real world. It's just about simulating like the real supply chains of that era, right? And that of that of that time, um, where you're you know you're dealing with coal, you're dealing with industrialization, uh, that stuff. Yeah, so uh,
0: apparently, EU four overlaps with uh, CK. three ends on in on uh in January of fifty three, and EU four starts in forty four. Uh, 14, 44, 40, so... Okay. Interesting. Um, we do have to... We should do, like, a whole, like, run-through of the whole thing. If, like, you know... I don't know, I guess we both... If at some point we're both unemployed and have literally nothing
1: better to do, we should just play all the way through these games from, like... You, so what we should do, actually, what I would what I would think would actually be funny and interesting is... Um, Something that I watched a, a a let's play for that Quill eighteen did was he did a save file transfer game right, which was him. I think this was an EU four, which was him playing a. It was like five hours or something. You or it, was, it wasn't. It wasn't hours. It was years. It was you play the save file until an arbitrary date, and then you pass the save file to another person. And they they pick up, and then they pass it back. And so what it was is him and another Let's Player, and he was playing, uh, I think it was like... 10 years at a time or something in EU4. Um, and, they, and it was funny because later in the playthrough, they had very different goals for the nation where he wanted to expand militarily and the other guy was trying to, like, solidify these culture games and essentially kind of, uh, like, tech up, like, like research stuff. So they were kind of, like they were being very bad partners in a way where they were just completely trash. Whatever the original person, they they would inherit the same file and just like get rid of all of the stuff that was in progress that they were doing, uh, which I thought was pretty funny, but I think that that would actually be kind of interesting and kind of fun to see what was something along those lines might look like for, um, I think it'd be cool. Uh, for Vicky or you or, you, or you, Crusader Kings you upper universality.
0: I would say for Crusader Kings it'd be cool not to do it by years, but to be like you play a ruler and when okay. he dies you pass it off. Yeah. yeah. That is
1: true. That is true. Uh, that would be fun.
0: Although you might get like weird overlaps, right? because like, like, you know, some like if your ruler lives for a long time, then your son tends to be a little bit older and uh, you know, he might die sooner, but you know, we'll yeah. Yeah. Think be... same thing
1: with uh same thing with europa universalis right which also has you know like kings and rulers and stuff um you know and you're trying to get that the coveted the coveted 666 role right where you have six administrative six military and six of the whatever the other one is that i don't remember um because it gives you your your points per turn you know your points per month or whatever it is
0: yeah um that actually would be an interesting metagame is like you know no you 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 raise your son to like have stats like no you can't do military conquest because you're like high stewardship low military you got to keep doing the economic expansion he's like fuck you i'm gonna gonna do what i want i'm gonna make your make my son a military genius and now you have to play that way um yeah that would be that would be neat though um but yeah we should also play more multiplayer paradox that'd be fun
1: yeah, I mean, I liked it when we were playing when we were playing Stellaris. Stellaris is a good game. The thing about Stellaris, Stellaris that I think is fun is, um, is the mid game of Stellaris is incredible and I and kind of unmatched, right? Um, you know, like when it comes to these long form strategy games, just like setting up a mid game empire in Stellaris is the greatest shit, right? Like when you already basically have your borders set up, right? You have your first couple of planets, but you are now sort of optimizing those planets and really kind of kicking the game into you know like into gear um ah that stuff is great
0: <laughs> yeah um i don't know i, I like ck3 just because it's kind of like you just kind of do what you want and like fight fate might fuck you or it might not but like i don't know um i probably play a bunch of that i'll probably i will probably end up playing a much more of that before the uh, Vicky 3 release yeah but uh, yeah i don't know if i got anything more to talk about i'm still reading um What's the uh still reading Rise of Endymion, which is still good. Still recommend. Um I don't know if I have anything else though. You got anything else you want to talk about before we, we, we get out of this one?
1: What else do I want to talk about? Um I have Have you ever played Stardew Valley? Uh I, I haven't played
0: Stardew Valley, but i I actually don't think I've played any of the farming games really.
1: Really? I I, I watched a video from uh I watched a video from Dunkey recently where he compared the Nintendo Direct and the state of play, right? Like the PS4 state of play and then the Nintendo Direct. And one of the sort of sub-themes of that is that in, for the Nintendo Direct, every game had a, this farming sort of rpg resource management game and i've been playing stardew valley again with with rachel right she and i have been playing because um, when we were locked out of our house for four days not locked out of our house we, we didn't have power for four days um so you started actually we, we farming we is that what happens yeah well so what we did was we bought a second switch and we started playing stardew valley co-op on the switch Right, um, where uh, you know she and I were like doing this, doing this farm together. I famously really love fishing in Stardew Valley, um, and have been a like real yeah, yeah. I I'm insanely good at fishing in that game. It is really funny, and that comes from a playthrough of co-op that I did with Syrian and Relana, where we made a farm together uh, and started just fishing all the time. Um, uh, because I was basically just kind of. Um, i was kind of the person who was like providing the steady income day to day because i would fish 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 and then sell all my fish and that would just give us you know however however, you know much gold per day or whatever the case may be but yes so anyway stardew valley um is sort of the endemic one of these kind of like farming simulator games and it's one that i see people talking about all the time and you know like i think people are interested in uh when it when it comes to just because there's so much to do and it is like a famously kind of expansive game um And, uh, and I don't know, I was just, I was wondering, do you, do you have any thoughts about, like, the, the, this explosion of Sardu Valley alikes, right? Uh, who are, I mean,
0: if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna be, like, a stickler, it's, they're all Harvest Moon alikes, right? Sure. Which has, which has, like, an IP thing associated with it or whatever, which is why the new one isn't named Harvest Moon. It's named, like, Eighth Hopeful Season or something like that, um, Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I don't have a lot of experience with the farming ones. Like, obviously, it's got some shared genetics with, like, Minecraft and Factorio and and all those kind of construction ones. Oh, uh, um, yeah, Factorio. Uh, but I, I have never really latched on to the farming ones. But I've mostly stayed with the very constructiony ones. Um, but, That's yeah. Fair.
1: The one that I have always wanted to get into and go hard on is Satisfactory. Have you ever heard of Satisfactory? I have. I have. I might uh, even own a copy of it. I have seen Satisfactory and just been like, I think the second i go in on this it's gonna ruin my life like it's gonna just destroy my my entire existence
0: so so the one the one that's kind of like this that i that i like a lot um is kerbal space program which is oh yeah which is like kind of i think it's in the same vein like um because like apparently you learn like real physics when you play that game um and like you know you you like and I have spent some periods of time, like, doing it, playing it for a little while, but then KSB2 got announced. I was like, oh, I'll wait for that, Um, but that hasn't come out in, like, years, so maybe it's not coming out, but... um,
1: Yeah, I mean, in 2019, when I went to PAX East, which was three years ago, there was a KSB2 booth, Yeah, and we still haven't seen it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. but, yeah, the, the other notable thing that happened is our, our, one of our old favorite YouTubers, Trend Immortal, has gone back to League of Legends.
1: Oh, my God. Uh, what, a, what a letdown that video was because I haven't played League in years and I had no idea what the fuck I was watching. <laughs> like... Not going to lie, I like. I
0: was like, I could play some League of Legends, and I updated the game, and I haven't played it because I don't want to really play it
1: alone. But if you want to dip your toes back in, let me know, and I'll hop on. God, I really don't want to... Dip my okay, back then in. don't. Honestly, the thing that I'm looking forward to is Overwatch 2 comes out uh, in a couple of weeks. Um, so, so I, I, I haven't been playing other games. The other game that I've been playing is Wrath Classic, um, which is on its pre-patch, because next week, on the 26th, uh, it launches in, in kind of earnest. And I have just kind of been sitting on, you know, the, my human warrior, Tonric, on that account... Um, and he got to, I got, I got him to level 40 in like regular classic. And then I got the, you know, like the whirlwind axe, which is this famous uh, weapon that, you know, uh, that warriors get as like a class quest or whatever else um and i played a little bit of burning crusade but like the talent trees in burning crusade were worse than i i never played burning crusade but they're just like kind of uninteresting and so i never really got into it um which is a little bit of a shame because it is the version of classic that i just kind of never it is the version of wow that i've never played right i quit you know, before ever doing Burning Crusade content, and I re- and I came back into the game during Wrath of the Lich King, right? Um, and I have to say, the nostalgia is sort of there, but also just the, I think the class design of World of Warcraft solidifies in Wrath of the Lich King, right? Now that I am playing, now that I am playing Wrath directly. Um, it's, uh, it's it's kind of weirdly night and day, having played the classic version of Warrior versus the Wrath version of Warrior, which is really where you start to get an understanding of a rotation, right? You know, these abilities that are using your cooldowns are much more manageable, right? You know, taking the cooldown of Retaliation, right, which is this ability that says every time you get attacked, you auto-attack in in response. That used to have a 30-minute cooldown in, in uh, Burning Crusade and in Vanilla WoW, right? Now it has a five minute cooldown and I'm using it a lot more tactically, right? Where it's like, oh, I can pull this whole group of guys and pop retaliation. And I know that I'm going to beat them up because I have all this extra damage kind of going out against them. Right. Um, And I think all of that stuff is just sort of neat and interesting uh, kind of playing that playing that out. Kind of back to back, uh, and seeing and seeing what it's like. My my goal is to get to eighty. I tell myself I'm gonna I'm gonna you know do the do the hard farm and get all the way through to, to level eighty in Wrath Classic. Probably not do much more. You know, like maybe I'll do Pug raids, but even then I don't know that I actually want to do Pug raids in, in Wrath Classic. Uh, but now that now that my like huge gigantic throbbing erection for Total War Warhammer three is is subsiding. Um, I I have been dipping my toes back into other games. I am, in fact, going to raid in 15 minutes instead of skipping it like I have for the last month just to play (laughs) just to play more Warhammer.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, I might actually skip it this week by uh, by total coincidence (laughs) because I'm I'm a little bit tired and I've got other things to do, but... with that, I'm going to say uh, if you'd like to email us about any of the things you, you heard us talk about on this podcast, you can email us at or podcast at Games.com. You can follow us at twitch.tv, and these go out live. So, support us on Patreon. Uh, you can watch these on YouTube, uh, listen on SoundCloud, or wherever you find podcasts. Um, that's everything I have. Buddy, do you have anything else you're looking to promote?
1: Uh, the only thing I'm looking to promote is that Absolute Tactics is out. It is the it is released and you can go you can go play it on Steam and Epic and Gog and Nintendo Switch, just a million different places. So
0: yeah I have bought it but I have not played it yet. Um, looks well
1: good. I hope you have a good time honestly I, I think I'm just going to play it I, I've never actually beaten the game I've taken a million hours of footage and stuff like that but there's a part of me that just like I actually kind of wants to sit down in my free time rather than work time to, to, to play through uh, kind of the rest of uh, the rest of the title so yeah absolute tactics is out I'm excited
0: alright well then I'm going to say uh, until next time dear listeners
1: until next time loyal listeners